Today, we are joined by Mike Masterman. Mike Masterman actually recently just left his position at Lyft. He was the head of global policy and social impact, where he worked on initiatives related to civic engagement, autonomous vehicles, opening global markets, smart cities. He had a really interesting portfolio. It was really exciting to be able to record this episode because at the time, he was just planning his departure. He had given his notice and he was leaving at the end of the month. We talk a lot about his transition and why he made the decisions that he made, how spirituality comes into it for him. And when I say spirituality, I mean how does approach to life intertwine with his decisions around business and how he sees the social impact space. It's going to be a really interesting conversation, so thanks for being here. Without further ado, welcome Mike Masterman. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make-or-break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make-or-break moments that make social impact so impactful. Okay. Have you left now? No, my last day is next uh, Wednesday, so the 30th, or Tuesday, I guess, the end of the month. That's an extra exciting day because it's also my birthday, so. Oh. So sending all the good vibes. I'm receiving them. Mike, when we first started talking, a lot of our conversation was around values and corporate values. And there was a pivotal moment that you talked about a number of years ago in the more early days of Lyft. What was that moment? I wrote an internal memo about values and the reason why values matter so much to companies. Mm. And this was many years back, you know, I think it's more around like, what does it mean for a company to actually do things in an authentic manner? And like, I just, there's so many companies right now that are like scrambling to figure out what their response to COVID and their response to all the racial inequities. And it's like, if you haven't been doing this work for many, many years, and if you haven't built the kind of internal ethos, like you're going to get called out, Mm. you know? I mean, I agree that companies are getting called out and living their values. And it's funny, I had a question posed to me yesterday about who are you responding to? And I think that there's this big push on companies to respond and speak to their values now. And you're right, if companies don't have a response, then they come across inauthentic. I mean, what do you think is the downside to coming across inauthentic right now? Well, I think, number one, you have a generation of consumer and a generation, frankly, of activists who really care about authenticity. And authenticity isn't just sending out a tweet to say something. Authenticity means having action that backs up your words. Authenticity means actually looking at, you know, the actions within the company. What is the makeup of the board of directors? What are the makeup of the executives? What institutional processes and systems and trainings and education do companies have, you know, within their own uh, walls that actually live out their values. It's easy for a company also to just tweet something out. It's also easy for a company just to put values on a wall and not live them. I think the hard work comes in both the grass tops showcasing of values, meaning coming from top down, and also grassroots, meaning every single person you know who's hired is hired because they are representative of those values. I, I'm I'm a firm believer that culture is created every day by each and every one of us we get to choose that culture by the way we show up by the way we you know communicate with one another via email via phone via zoom whatever that is you know culture is obviously created by by folks some some of the people within the company but i I think every single person has a an instrumental role to play in it Hmm. i mean you've led a really purpose-driven career How do you feel? I mean, I feel like the mindset that you're talking about, it's easy to speak to purpose and to values from a leadership down perspective, because that's often how values are created for companies. But when you're talking about it from bottom up, I mean, you have to be someone that has lived values in your career so far. How has purpose and values played a role for you? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, it was like a securitist route for me. I mean, it starts, I think the values piece starts from my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think about my grandparents. Um, my grandparents on my father's side immigrated from Russia. They were escaping pogroms and anti-Semitism at the turn of the century. 
um, and they ended up in Detroit. And my grandfather was, was very active with the Democratic Party uh, in Detroit. And, and my aunt was a, a feminist who marched with Gloria Steinem and, and was a writer and an activist uh, herself. And, and on my mom's side, my family was originally from Poland and left and went to what was then Palestine, now Israel. And my grandfather left to go visit my grandmother in August of 1939. And many folks in his family died in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's immense trauma in, in, in the family from, uh, from a lot of hate. And so I was, I was raised with this notion of number one, this idea of belonging and inclusivity and equality was, was paramount in my family and standing up for, for those and giving voice to those who may not have a voice uh, and, 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 and speaking out for what we believed what was right. And, and also there was a belief in, in service and in, in civic duty and in having this amazing opportunity to vote and to, to be engaged in the system of, of democracy. Um, and so you, throughout my career, it, it didn't, I didn't jump right in, into politics. I was actually an international corporate lawyer for, for many years. Uh, I, was, I was told by some folks that, hey, if you wanted to get involved in you know, the global political arena, having global corporate law and legal would really help. And you know, we can talk about that later, how I don't think there necessarily is this, this, this singular path towards whatever it is we're, we're seeking. But it wasn't really until later in my career when I, when I did join the Obama campaign that I, that I really realized what it meant to, to live out your values in a manner that was consistent with what my parents and my grandparents had raised me with. Mm. I love that you put so much emphasis on just that there isn't a linear path. What was the sort of pivotal moment for you that, that took you from corporate law into the Obama campaign? Like something must have happened. Yeah, I mean, look, there was there was this pivotal moment, and 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 I'll say like one thing that I had I, I had learned um, about myself was that you know, growing up in Orange County, first off, there were a lot of people with different views than my own. You know, Orange County was where Richard Nixon's from. John Birch Society started there, a place where Ronald Reagan kicked off his political campaigns, and so people weren't always of the same political views that I had, and. And I learned early on to, um, from actually a teacher, Mrs. Malkin, to really critically think, to, to not just answer the question what, but really dig into the question why. Uh, and, and part of that, in, in those moments, I, I, I learned to find my own voice and to, to trust a bit of my own intuition. Mm -hmm. But the Obama moment was, was an interesting one for me in the course of my career, because at that time, I was very passionate about then Senator Obama. I was doing work through Democrats Abroad. I was organizing through the My Barack Obama Sydney group. And, uh, and uh, you know, I was constantly watching the news and, and trying to engage in whatever I could. Um, but at the same time, I was living this great life in Sydney. I had this wonderful apartment. I was surfing before work. I had a serious girlfriend. I had a great group of friends. Uh, and I was living this this great life. But I at that moment in the world, I felt like we were at a crossroads. And President Obama was the first, he was the first politician who, when he spoke, I thought to myself, wow, this person articulates a vision for the world that is exactly what I believe. This is democracy in action. This is what having someone truly represent you and your voice means. And I realized I could not be on the sidelines. And so basically some friends came to visit and they said, hey, if you're you know, wild about this guy, you got to join the campaign. And I, I said, I don't even know what joining a campaign means. But I put together a resume, I sent it to a friend, basically, another friend of his who actually went to the University of Michigan with us, but I had not known her at the time, was driving through Washington, DC, she said, she's had 1000s of resumes, she needs to hire someone to come out and help her in North Carolina. He said, you'll never believe it, my buddy in Australia just told me that he's interested in joining the campaign. And she called me um, a few days later, and said, Here's a situation. You have one hour to tell me if you're joining the campaign, and you have one week to get to Greensboro, North Carolina. And quite the ultimate you know, all, curious request. Yeah. Right. And 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 we've all had these interesting like Zen moments, these sliding door moments, so to speak, where you can like go back and you vividly remember like all of your senses in that moment. I remember going for coffee and thinking to myself, whoa, this is one of those moments that I will always look back at this decision, at this choice, 
And, um, and if I, if I don't go join this campaign and, and this was a time of the campaign where Obama was not necessarily ahead. The Reverend Wright stuff was coming out. Hillary Clinton had won, uh, Ohio, the Ohio primary and things were not certain, but for me, I knew that I had to be part of this campaign. And so I, I called her and I told her I was in, I didn't know if I was gonna be able to get there in a week. I told the partner who I was working with at the time that I was going to go join the Obama campaign. He had a bit of a freak out, but then ended up really being supportive because I was the first person ever to write a memo to the chairman of the firm and get a leave of absence to join an American political campaign wow. while I was living in Australia. Yeah. And 10 days later, I got a one-way ticket to Greensboro, North Carolina um, to join the political, uh, the political team there. And that, that choice really did change the whole trajectory of my life. And, and to your, your question about values, it was the first time being on that campaign that I realized that I was working on something that was much greater than myself. And it's not to say that I didn't learn a lot doing cross-border capital markets deals and cross-border M&A. I did. I learned, I learned a tremendous amount. But being on that campaign and, and, and actually working to get someone like you know, President Obama elected was a complete game changer for me. Hmm. I feel like whenever you jump into work that's like purpose-driven, you're always trying to remember or stay grounded in the reason that you did it, like that feeling of being a part of something greater. And I mean, you've also been a part of corporations doing the same kind of work. How have you stayed connected to that purpose? Because obviously like things change, right? Um, conversations adjust. How do you stay focused on just the reason that you make the decisions that you have? Well, when I was looking to leave, when I was transitioning from, from the Obama administration, I, I'd wanted to come back to California, it's where I'm from, and I'd wanted to come to the Bay Area. I thought being part of the, the tech and startup ecosystem would really align with, with my personality in, in, in certain ways. And I really wanted to go to a company that was aligned with my values. After you know, serving in the Obama administration, I, I knew that for the rest of my life, I, I wanted to do something that was going to have a greater social impact in the world and a positive impact in the world. And, and I'll say that there's a lot of great companies here in Silicon Valley that are all touting, we're going to change the world. And it, it's subjective how you think about different companies and how they're changing the world. But what I can tell you is that when I walked into those doors of Lyft a little over six years ago, there was a sense in the air. Number one, it felt like a, a campaign office, like an Obama campaign office, like diversity of people, just a real buzz in the air. But there was a genuine sense of caring about the mission and caring about the people there in a way that I hadn't seen in other companies. You know, when they talk, you know, improving people's lives and changing the world in transportation, it wasn't, it, it wasn't done in like a tongue in cheek kind of way. It was done in a real earnest. And for me, I think that's the key. The key is, is, is the idea of, of being authentic about the work uh, and then being authentic with myself. You know, we all tell, tell ourselves different stories to convince ourselves to do different things. And then there's moments in our life where you aren't telling yourself a story. It's just unfolding in a, in a, in a more truthful manner. And mm -hmm. for me, when I, when I ended up coming to Lyft, um, I really felt that connection to the values and to the authenticity. And, and what I'll tell you is, uh, it's like we were saying a little bit about the values. It was about living them. And that was because of the people. It was the most creative, some of the smartest, most interesting and interested people that I'd ever worked with and who also really not just cared about the work, but really cared about, uh, about each other. To me, when I think about what does it mean to do purpose-driven work and work at mission-driven companies, it's not just actually about the work. It truly is about the people who you're working with. And it's not, you know, what I like to say is that it's not just about sort of making things happen. It's oftentimes how you make it happen that, that matters the most. Hmm. Tell me more about that, how you make things happen. Well, there's like, I'll say during my time in the Obama administration, um, you know, I was working in roles where we had to collaborate with lots of different agencies, State Department, Treasury, um, Homeland Security, Interior. And I was at Commerce and working closely with the White House. And, um, you know, oftentimes in politics, there's, there's this... Um, there's this competition to figure out who gets credit for what. And for mm -hmm. me, my style has always been really collaborative. And I'll tell you like a, 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 quick, a quick anecdote. I, I worked at the Cheesecake Factory many, many years ago. Love it. <laughs> and, and I learned about 
cross-functional collaboration, as I like to call it, in the Cheesecake Factory. And I refined those skills throughout my time at you know, law firms and on the campaign. But the Cheesecake Factory, what I realized was if I was going to be the best server possible, I was going to align myself and um, give great tips to the busboys and to the hosts and the hostesses, to the runners, the people who are running the food, to the bartenders, to the people who were slicing the cheesecake and serving the desserts and coffee. And if I treated all of them with kindness and respect and befriended them and created allyships with them and really collaborated with them such that, you know, if we got a great tip, it was a great tip for all of us together. It wasn't just my tip that I was going to be a great server. And, and I was. And I learned that value when I was at law firms as well, when it was a, a huge merger and acquisition deal. Guess what? The folks who were raising the funding to do the debt equity or the capital markets equity and the people who were doing the work on the environmental part and the tax part and the labor part, they were just as big a part of those deals as possible. And so for me, that ethos of collaboration and cross-functional coordination is sort of in my DNA, but I learned it and refined it and, and throughout you know, government really took that seriously so that when I came to Lyft, it wasn't about like a, 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 a victory for, for us and the policy team or, or a victory for people on ops or product. It was, it was a victory for all of us. And this, this mantra for me, at least I love the mantra of win together. Mm-hmm. And what win together means is that it's not just about winning. It's not just about that you made something happen. It's that you did it together as a team. Um, mm-hmm. And and, and that is, I think, a really, really important ethos, especially as, you know, a young startup grows into a big publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially I remember you were saying earlier in Silicon Valley time, like six years of the company is an eternity, right? So when people are moving around so often, I'm sure a lot of it is like try and get as many successes as you can to prep you for the next job. And it sounds like you guys looked at things differently there. First off, you you you're still working extremely hard and you're still, you know, putting points up on the board and, and being as innovative and creative as possible. And by the way, for us, I I think there was, there was an extra challenge, which was we were forging a brand new industry, creating brand new regulations. We were going up against very entrenched interest in, in taxis. We were going up against immense bureaucracies and changing legislation that sometimes had been changed in a hundred years. And we had a competitor who frankly had like 30 times the amount of money and engineers and all those things. So we, we had to be really creative. And it it, it reminds me that just there's this this value that we have the company that's be yourself. And to me, be yourself wasn't just be ourselves as individuals. It was like be ourselves as a company and let's do really, really serious work and let's not take ourselves so seriously. Let's take chances. Let's take risks. Um, but what I talked about in terms of the people, it was, it was this great group uh, of people who I think were really, really fun to work with and who had, who had a lot of fun. And, and for me, I was absolutely, um, you know, myself at work, which means, you know, having come from different walks of life in my, in my um, professional career, I also, you know, I, I, I backpacked many times. Uh, I, I'm a surfer. I'm a yogi. I love to meditate. Um, you know, I'm into I'm into some spiritual things. I love music, and I also, you know, am, you know, serious about politics and and policy and and um, you know civics and um, and so it's 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 sort of operating through all those systems and really honoring being yourself. And it, I'll, I'll tell you, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by E. Cummings who said, it takes courage to grow up and turn out to be who you really are. Mm. To be nobody but yourself in a world that's doing its best to make you somebody else is to fight the hardest battle you're ever going to fight. Never stop fighting. Why does that resonate with you so much? It resonates with me because I think that people try to put um, others in boxes because it's how we as humans can understand the world. it's how we can perceive the world in, in an easier way. So, you know, if you are a corporate lawyer, then great, you are a corporate lawyer. If you are in politics, then you are this archetype of someone in politics who wears a suit and tie every day. If you are in tech, then you have whatever archetype it is that you think about someone in tech. And if you are a surfer or if you are a yogi or if you are into meditation, um, 
you know, then that's when if you are, you know, uh, a, someone who's super into nature or hiking, it's just easier for us to be able to put each other into these different boxes. But the truth is when you, when you shatter those boxes, when you realize that we're all, you know, boundless and limitless in who we can be in life, it's just, so, it's such a better way to live. And so that, that quote resonates with me because also I have to say that I had been someone who's just been true to myself throughout my life. I, I, I grew up going to private school and, and I wasn't very religious growing up, but I would play soccer and baseball um, with folks who went to public school. And so I was always moving between these different groups. And I think it's why I, I use my sense of humor in, in certain ways to create a sense of belonging. But I think it's why the notion of inclusivity is, is so important to me. And I also love that quote because I think about <clears throat> after my junior year abroad in college, I studied abroad in Jerusalem. And many Israelis take time off after they serve in the army. And I got back my senior year in college and I, I told my parents that I was going to take a year off in backpacks to South America. And of course, um, they freaked out. They were, they were big believers in, in, in the inertia of education. And they looked around and, and saw various of my friends who were going to law school and medical school and working at different investment banks and consulting firms and thought, oh my gosh, like, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> But for me, that was, that, was, that was one of these really pivotal choices um, for me in life because I wanted to, I did want to forge my own path. And, you know, when people ask me uh, about advice and, hey, I want to go do, you know, global um, government relations at a company or I want to go do social impact, like what's the best path? And honestly, there is no path. The path mm -hmm. is being true to yourself. And, and I made a ton of mistakes along the way. I'll tell you one last story, which is I remember when I was a, um, I was a summer associate at a, a big law firm in New York many years ago, mm. and I used to wear a puka shell necklace. Don't, don't, don't tell anybody. I, um, everyone I guess, will know. I guess everyone's going to know. I guess everyone's <laughs> going to know now. Um, and I remember uh, friends being like, hey, like, you can't wear that puka shell necklace to this like, law firm. Like, that's just like, not going to fly. And I remember thinking, okay, fine. Like, I'll take this puka shell necklace off, but I am going to have that puka shell necklace on via my personality. Um, and what I realized very, very quickly was that, um, you know, I could do the work just as good or better than, than, than anyone else. But it's having, you know, that, that, that truth and not taking yourself always so seriously that for me creates this, like, this spark and this energy and this excitement for life for me that e cummings quote is, is a reminder of that and a reminder to um to fight for that sometimes when there's different societal structures that tell you you're supposed to be in these different boxes and don't you dare veer from one to another mm -hmm. i feel as though too especially in corporate world or government or, i mean i guess law really it is courageous like it's courageous to take that stand and this is sparking something for me because i one of the other interviews i've done was with someone who was speaking about feeling whole in their role and how they had found a place where they didn't have to identify with one archetype, that they found work where they could be their full selves. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the co-founders said that when you're hiring someone, co-founders at Lyft, mm. you want to hire that, you want to hire, hire them for your full selves. Like he, mm. he was at Lehman Brothers and he always said like you had to put on a different persona when you came to work. But the truth is you want people to feel accepted for who they fully are. No matter your your sex, your race, your religion, your background, you want to feel like you are able to be your full self. Um, and I don't know if that's courageous. I'll, I'll tell you that, like, when I was in high school, I had this amazing teacher, Mrs. Mrs. Malkin. Yeah, I was and like, we got to come back to Mrs. Malkin. We, we just, we let's go back to Mrs. Over Malkin. Her. No, she, she, she had a profound uh, impact on my life. And, and, I do, and I think because she was the first teacher who for me at least, really, um, really focused on the critical thinking. At a time when, you know, you're just like, wrote memorization sort of like what you're supposed to do. You just memorize the facts, spit them out in the paper. I was more curious about the why. And I was also amongst different people who had different political perspectives. And I remember Prop 187 happened in California, this anti-immigration bill. And we had to have these debates in class. And, and a lot of uh, students think just sort of like, gave the same opinions that their parents would have would have said and, and granted I was aligned with what my parents taught me as well but I really had to think like what does it mean to stand up for for folks when I think about what's happening now with the protests around racial injustices and and 
and standing up for these values and beliefs when maybe it's not popular. I think about these courageous leaders who, who stood up to very powerful entities and helped change systems um, and laws. To me, that's, that's courage. And now, you know, there's been, I think, a huge shift in terms of companies taking stances. And I think Trump changed a lot of that. But when no one's paying attention, when no one's looking, when you're not going to get any PR or press out of it, and it's just you, what choice would you make? knowing you might not get anything out of it. To me, that's the sort of true test of it all. Mm-hmm. There's some detective work happening around being authentic. Like, is this company being authentic? Are these leaders being authentic? And, and how does that show up? Yeah. And, and, and look, the truth is, these are, these are messy, hard things to grapple with. And I'm, you know, I'm not just talking about the, the racial inequity issue. I'm talking about impact issues across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, these are decisions that I think, you know, need to be discussed in a meaningful way. And and what I can tell you is that I, I, I think back to different moments at Lyft and moments that, that, that I'm really proud of. And it's not actually some of the bigger moments that people think about, like, you know, when we gave money to the ACLU or um, the work we've done recently in COVID and around racial injustices or around our, our big get out the vote effort in 2018. They're actually moments that I don't think people really knew about mm-hmm. that were publicized or moments like when there were, uh, there were controversy over the LGBTQ bathroom bills in places like North Carolina. At the same time, we were passing legislation in different states. And every moment, our co-founders would say, hey, here's a letter to the governor saying congratulations on being so innovative and passing these legislation. And here's another letter that says, shame on you, governor, for passing these discriminatory bathroom bills. And, wow. and it was like, of course, we're going to sign the letters that said shame on you, because what's the point in operating in these states if we can't be true to who we are and our values? Or... Yeah, and making decisions around, you know, partnering. We, we partnered with, um, it's actually um, Vice President Biden's uh, led initiative called the It's On Us campaign um, to end sexual assault in, in college campuses. And we, we partnered with them and a few other entities to talk about sexual assault many, many years ago when there were people who said, you're crazy to talk about sexual assault. Like, do airlines ever talk about planes crashing when you come into a plane? But it was the right thing to do. I I love these examples. And I'm also just like, I'm thinking about the internal corporate stuff that just happens. And like, you know, the conversations that must have happened, the influence that had to be created. Like, how did you navigate that? Well, I'll tell you one last story that illustrates that, which was when Trump was elected, he created this this board that had CEOs of businesses, you know, across the country, and, and included the CEO of our competitor and many many other of our CEOs. And there was um, a big discussion around, you know, should we be part of this board? All these other big companies are part of this board, and we want to be a player. We want to be able to have an impact and influence over policies in, in Washington, but we didn't want to align with um, with Trump and. And these are discussions where you try to think about what is going to be the business impact of making this decision and how do you balance that with doing the right thing and leading with values. And ultimately, we ended up deciding not to join the board and stand up to, to Trump. And you know, in hindsight, obviously, that was the right decision as a number of CEOs ended up dropping off that board and then you know, Charlottesville happened and then everyone sort of dropped out. In those moments, can you be true to who you are? Can you do the right thing? Yeah. And I think, I mean, the question that often I would assume gets flagged is like, are we going to alienate a demographic? The answer is yes. And then the answer is that's okay because we don't want those folks to be part of our community anyways. If when you think about ride sharing, we're creating a community where you step into a stranger's car and no matter what that person's background is, they're, they're part of this community and they need to be treated with respect and kindness. And if people don't want to abide by those sort of standards, then they don't have to be part of the community. And I'll tell you one other point, which is, I remember speaking with the Ben and Jerry's folks. They told me, oh yeah, and and we're focused a lot on racial equity issues. And I said, wait a second, what? You're like an ice cream company by two white dudes in Vermont focused on racial equity? Tell me more about that. And you know, I'll never forget that conversation because they said, you don't just, it wasn't like you just snapped your fingers and decided to do this kind of work. It's, it's years of having conversations and really creating a foundation for, for taking the stand. I mean, Patagonia did the same thing mm-hmm. um, on environmental justice with their work on, on Bears Ears. And so, of course, there's going to be people who might not 
want to become a consumer of the brands when brands are taking these kinds of stances. On the other hand, there are people who care deeply about values of brands. You sound like somebody who's really paid attention to your intuition as you've made some transitions. You moved from the Obama campaign to Lyft, leaving corporate law for the Obama campaign. What role does intuition play for you? I don't think my intuition's always been right. <laughs> so, yeah, like sometimes my intuition was like, oh, this was the role I really wanted and I would go super hard for it and I didn't get it and I would think to myself, gosh, I can't believe I didn't get that role. And then <laughs> all of a sudden this other thing was right in front of me and I didn't see the other door because I was so focused on that door mm. like to my left. I didn't even see this like other door to my right that was like mm. wide open and yelling my name. <laughs> and then once I was able to sort of turn to the right, I was like, oh, wow. Um, so I think, look, trusting my, my intuition, I think, goes back to, to honestly just being comfortable with who you are and trusting yourself uh, and in making some of those decisions that I made that maybe weren't the conventional decisions to leave you know, my job in New York and move to Australia, to leave that job and join you know, the Obama campaign. And then, frankly, to come to Lyft, which at the time people were like, wait a second, you're leaving the Obama administration to join that weird pink mustache, fist bumping company, like what? And my intuition was that these were the kind of people I wanted to work with and do battle with. Um, mm -hmm. This was the kind of company that aligned with my values. And, um, and along the way, yeah, the, my intuition, my intuition um, I think has also served me because I've been able to work with people who have the same ethos and mindset that I have. And even if I'm having, you know, vigorous spirited debates uh, and I don't, doesn't work out the way that I, I, I thought it, were, it would work out. Um, I always just have to be true to myself and know that I've tried to stand up for what I thought was right. And um, yeah. trusting your intuition is, I think, an ever evolving process that each of us go through every day that I'm continuing to learn more and more about myself every day. And I started, uh, I started meditating more recently mm. and and I actually, I was on a, a silent meditation retreat wow. the week of March 9th. So the week that everything, um, everything sort of went sideways with COVID, I was, I was meditating. And I found, and I had always read about meditation and I thought to myself, what is, what, what is this stuff? And then as I, and I had a, a professor in college, professor, professor Richard Mann, who had another, he was a profound impact, someone who had a profound impact on my life and he taught a class called the psychology of spiritual development and and i'd sort of like been dipping my toe in the pool for many many years and once i went to this vipassana i felt like i finally um, jumped off the high dive into the pool which is like maybe the kiddie pool actually it's like the kiddie pool and then there's a bigger pool and then there's like a bay and an ocean and the ocean leads to like the universe and so i'm just like just getting started but, <laughs> you don't head first into the kiddie pool we're here <laughs> totally but but I, but <laughs> right, um, but I think that doing that kind of spiritual work and 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 meditation and just taking those deep breaths has actually really helped me in in trusting my intuition and and when you trust your intuition, I think you're able to see those doors mm. that are open in front of you that otherwise, um, when you're kind of living in this myopic way, you aren't seeing those other opportunities in life, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder too, I mean, as you're, you know, speaking up for what you believe in trying to, trying to do whatever, whatever aligns most authentically with you. Do you ever, like, how often do you have to make the decision of like, I'm just going to bite my tongue and like, hold this one in. Like this is, and this is something, it was actually, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and we were talking about something I would have loved to speak up on and I chose not to. You're careful about the people that you're speaking up to, positions of power. How do you manage that? I think that you, you manage it in a thoughtful way, which I know mm. kind of sounds like a Pollyannish answer, but mm. I'll, pivot, I'll, I'll, I'll pivot from that and I'll tell you about what I think is an interesting moment in time for companies. And I'll get back to, to your question, which is it makes me think about the idea in geopolitics about hard power and soft power. So hard power is like our military might and soft power is our ability to go in and do nation building and build infrastructure globally and, and help with development and aid. And I think in a company, often folks focus on that hard power, 
your product and what, you know, how, how do you go in with your hard power? And I think the soft power part is the ability to collaborate with governments. Soft power is the ability to go in and actually work together with communities and have open and honest conversations where you learn about being a better corporate citizen. Soft power is having those conversations internally with people who you're learning from, who you may have, unbeknownst to you, made feel certain circumstance by speaking up or by not speaking up. Soft power comes with, I think, being more vulnerable and, and more willing to collaborate in, in that manner, in that cross-functional manner I talked about earlier. And I think there is a rise in corporate soft power right now. There's an emergence of corporate soft power in a way that I certainly haven't seen in my lifetime. And I think with that emergence of soft power is going to come an ability for people to speak up and speak out. And I'm not saying that, you know, the way that, that that's done and, and holding companies' feet to the fire, I think is really important. You know, companies are, are, are corporate entities. I'm someone who believes in the value of government. I believe in government to solve, you know, big problems. I believe in public-private partnerships. The last thing I'll say on this is that I think there really is this, this shift right now that's happening, both on the corporate front and on the global front. On the corporate front, I think there's a shift here in Silicon Valley with the recognition that you have to figure out how to work with governments. Whether you're in future of agriculture or biotech or fintech or education technology or transportation or travel and tourism, your success will plateau if you don't understand how to actually collaborate with governments and, and, and work with communities and, and have a real authentic social impact. I also think in a post-COVID world, we're waking up to how interconnected we all are. And I think there is an elevated level of consciousness that I'm, that I'm seeing and I'm hopeful about here in Silicon Valley, where um, a friend of mine talks about in investing in companies that, that, are, that are world positive. And how are, how are we thinking about companies that are going to have a real positive impact on the world? And, and how are they collaborating with government to make sure that they're uh, maximizing that impact in, in a positive way? Hmm. When you're talking about collaboration, especially working with different sectors, I mean, each of those sectors work at different paces. How have you sort of found that balance to move forward with collaboration and not just move more slowly? And also, is it different because of the industry you're in? I mean, the industry you're in moved very quickly and governments are also paid a role in just catching up and making sure that they were also agile to what was happening. Well, first, there needs to be recognition that change in any context is hard. Change is hard, right? It's hard, it's hard for any of us. Second, change when it comes on top of regulations becomes really hard. Um, you're moving through bureaucracies that um, within the institutions that you're working with, they're not set up to move so fast. And then when you, you know, when I think about lists specifically, when you, when you put change plus regulations plus transportation, this is an industry that sometimes they haven't changed regulations in 50, 60 years. In places in Europe, they literally hadn't changed regulations since you went from horse and buggy to automobile. <laughs> it becomes extraordinarily hard. And so there has to be a sense of compassion and empathy towards people who are in government, who are, you know, who are there to, to, to serve. And um, you know, most of whom I think uh, really do wanna see innovation happen. And there needs to be compassion on the part of folks in government who seek consumers who want change. I mean, for us, it was like, all of a sudden you went from in a place like San Francisco, you could never get a taxi and the service was terrible, to having an on-demand, affordable, reliable form of transportation, of course, that's going to become part of the transportation ecosystem. And of course, when that's taken away, you're going to want to do something about it. At the same time, it was also a great way for people to make extra income. It was like, you know, 80, 90% of the people driving for Lyft were doing so on a really part-time basis. And it's a great way to make extra cash. And so people in government had to recognize that. Now, what I'll also say is that having been in government, there's great opportunities to be innovative in government. Like that was one of the the best things for me was, was going into government and realizing you can be really entrepreneurial. We launched this great doing business in Africa program to highlight the importance of doing trade in sub-Saharan Africa, which are some of the fastest growing countries in the world. We launched this program called Look South, which was focused on trade with Mexico, you know, one of our biggest trading partners at the 20-year point of NAFTA, where there's a lot of rhetoric around the evils of trade. Well, there's also a lot of amazing things that come from trade. And there's a lot of amazing ways to utilize trade to actually elevate standards in labor and the environment. And when we worked with the Brookings Institute to create these metropolitan export plans for cities to think about what global 
competitiveness should be in the 21st century and creating export plans and foreign direct investment plans. And so, and so I think there has to be that compassion and, that, and empathy on both sides. But I will say there, there also needs to be this push and pull. And I think that that's healthy. Mm. What do you mean by push and pull? I mean that sometimes, you know, companies are pushing governments to create new rules and laws in ways that they hadn't imagined before. Like, you know, there's going to be autonomous vehicles on the roads. That's, that, that's going to happen. There are already tests happening across the country and, and the world. And, and governments are trying to make sure that this is done in the safest way possible. And companies are going to push to make sure that we have the infrastructure and the roads. And now I'm not saying, you know, government should move at this nail's pace. I'm saying we need to find that great compromise where you're thinking about people's safety, but you're innovating um, in a way that's consistent with the technology that's out there. The, like the push and pull, like you said, is important, but it's not the main focus. You're just talking about being compassionate and really seeing the people for what they're trying to achieve, the people behind those policies. I love that. When you think about the transitions that you've made to date, what has always guided you to taking the next step? When do you know that it's time to go? Yeah, I mean, different, different transitions have happened, have come in different times in my life. There are, for me, uh, different moments where I come to realize that it's my time to leave, where I've got an amazing team that I work with who's been empowered and who I know can, can step up and who it's time for me to go and, 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 and search for what's next. And sometimes I get that <clears throat> the curiosity, the itch to go think about different industries and, and, and work on different issues that I haven't had a chance to work on in, in certain of my roles. Um, I also think that we, we don't talk about the notion of burnout enough. Uh, I think you have to also trust your body. And, uh, you know, for me, I've been going pretty hard for the last 12 years. And so sometimes you have to know that it's time to take a break and to step in, in, into the unknown is sometimes scary, but it's also goes back to that trusting your intuition mm. um and and i think you know for me one thing that I, i'm reflective on as i do think about transitions is this idea of gratitude uh and just really focusing on gratitude for the people i've been able to work with along the way for all the people who helped me and supported me along the way um for the experiences that i was able to have and in these transitions when you focus on gratitude um, your cup is just overflowing and you become overflowing in, um, in abundance and in these opportunities that you've had. Um, and you become a lot more confident in what that next step in your journey is going to be. And so in each transition I've had in my professional career, I've actually changed cities and left and sometimes moved complete, completely different industries. And, and for this next transition for me, I don't plan to necessarily leave the Bay area uh, and I plan to sort of utilize all the different experiences that I've had, um, you know, legal, policy, political, uh, social impact, community affairs, strategy, um, you know, the global outlook of the world and, um, and sort of step into that. And so, and, and do so with humility and do so with, again, I think that, that sense of gratitude, which I'll say, well, the first time I started hearing about people talking about gratitude I was like, oh, wow, I have this like gratitude that I used to do, which is when I lived in Australia, I used to take my coffee out and just activate each one of my senses and just mm. smell the coffee, taste the coffee, listen to the birds. And, and now I realize gratitude is something that's a lot deeper. You shared that you're preparing for a transition. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was on that silent meditation retreat during uh, the time when, when COVID when COVID happened and, and it allowed me that, that, that space to, to really reflect um, with no speaking, no writing, no reading. Uh, and trust me, I could not believe that I was doing it. I did not, I, I had friends who did it, but. Was it hard? I was like, yeah, in the beginning it was hard. And then it was really beautiful because when you take all those things out, when you're not forced to have to talk to anybody and you don't have to read anything or write anything, or respond to anything, and, you're just, you get to just be. Mm. And um, when you just be um, and you just focus on breathing and then walking and then breathing and walking and eating, uh, there's a sense of calmness and clarity and real presence that I, I certainly never experienced in my life in such a profound way. Um, 
and it was it became it, it was the time I really was clear on that it was my it was I didn't know exactly when it was going to happen um, because there were still some things I wanted to accomplish but it was my time to for this next transition and I think so many of us derive so much value from the work we do because we're really passionate about the work and our identity becomes really wrapped up in the work we do and in who we're working for. You know, we go to these amazing conferences and we speak about the, you know, amazing programs that we're working on and, you know, Mike Masterman from Lyft and, you know, you get, you do get a lot of self-worth from that. And I think that that's great. And we are also so much greater than just who we work for. It was time for me to sort of let that, let this chapter close. And again, it was doing so with immense confidence in um, the team around me, just extraordinary, extraordinary people who, who, I mean, literally some of the smartest, um, most innovative people I've ever worked with in my entire career. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also who happen to be kind and, um, and, and dear, dear friends who I know I will be close with for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But also stepping into this, this moment where I can focus on some other things. My brothers and I wrote a kid's book um, a few years ago. Um, called Chasing the Sun, about a little turtle uh, on an island in search of the sun. And it talks about, you know, the importance of journey and, and climate. And so stepping into some more creative work with my brothers and things like that. I, I also do this Passover Seder called Pass Mass, which is what I call this reflective celebration of freedom. And it brings together just an amazing array of, of different friends and, and people from various communities who we reflect about freedom and then we celebrate life. And, and stepping into to some things like that where you're able to bring or different communities together. And that, that really excited me. And also, frankly, just the idea of being, uh, that we are, we're human beings at our core. And I had, I think, become more of a human doing. And all the different things that I was doing was becoming a lot more important than who I was being. And, um, and I'll tell you, I think that there's this balance, there's this rhythm to it in life because this is a moment where I think I, and I think a lot of other people, you don't want to be on the sidelines. You want to be engaged. There's a chance to have a real impact on, mm-hmm. um, you know, these racial equity issues. There's a chance to have a real impact post COVID on the way cities are run and on and the way that we can reimagine different institutions and government. And, and, you know, hopefully we will have a different president in, in November and there's going to be a chance to really reimagine, you know, how we are, a leader on the international stage and how we're collaborating with our different allies and, and how domestically we think about more inclusive cities and how we think about different companies who I think have the ability to do amazing things for humanity. And, and to me, that's really important. And sometimes we all need to take a collective deep breath and exhale. And I'll say just one last thing, which is I think we are also emerging um, in, a sen- in a time when it's, it's easy to feel tribalistic. It's really easy mm-hmm. for everybody to hunker down right now and think about just yourself and, and, and your close friends and your family. I think there's a moment for us to widen the aperture and mm-hmm. think about the collective and broader community in a way that certainly in my lifetime, I don't think we've done as well as we could. And, um, you know, for, certainly under President Obama, he he espoused those values. And I think we did all we could as a government, but I think now as a society, as a culture, there is this shift. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really hopeful that we take advantage uh, of that moment in our, in our cities and our states and our countries to, um, to really focus on, on that. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel as though probably a couple years ago, I burnt out super hard and real, like really hard. And thankfully I was going back to university. And so I, I use that as my excuse. I was like, oh, I'm going back to university, so I'm fine. <laughs> like, it wasn't like, oh, I burnt out and I need a break. It was more, I got jaded about the idea of community. This idea of commercialized community was owned by companies and not by individuals taking care of their neighbors and their, their communities and reaching into their communities to share space seemed to have been lost. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Like now is a time where we reach back in and we go to support our communities? Yes. And I think we need to expand the horizon of what we think about community Mm. because our communities aren't just, you know, 
our, our, our folks who are maybe the same religious congregation as us. Our mm -hmm. communities aren't just necessarily our neighbors in our you know, subdivision. I think we have to think about community in a more broader sense. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I know that sometimes the idea of focusing on the other becomes over politicized. Mm -hmm. But I think there needs to be this cultural shift. And again, I'm not I'm not talking about this from a political or policy context. I'm talking about this from a social and cultural context. Mm. And caring about the other and having more compassion and empathy about the other and hopefully deconstructing even what this notion of the other is. Mm -hmm. That to me is something that's really powerful. And I think we have this opportunity to go into that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Martin Luther King and Obama and others talk about, you know, the moral arc of the universe, you know, bending towards justice. And that doesn't just happen in one instance. But I think that there is an opportunity with everything happening with COVID for us to do the reflection and then to put that reflection into action. And I mean, it's almost like some of that groundwork over the last couple of years, especially in the States, like, I mean, we're, I'm in Canada, but especially in the States, it's been especially polarizing. The time is sort of now. And I think it comes from doing the work on, on ourselves and having this compassion and empathy. And to me, the idea of caring about each other, because mm -hmm. it's way easier for us to just care about ourselves and to care about those around us, to care about you know, other people in a real meaningful way. Uh, and, and someone I know here who works at Glide talks about getting proximate to folks who are homeless here in San Francisco and, and to understand that these people have these, I even just use this out to understand that folks who are homeless have, you know, stories just like ours, that, you know, certain decisions, you know, in our life shouldn't necessarily define us for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm from Orange County originally, and there's, there's, there's big protests and debates about wearing a mask in, in Orange County. And obviously I have my views that I, I think we should be wearing masks and I think that we should be, you know, thoughtful about how we socially distance. And of course I miss seeing my family and different friends and that I, I guess some part of me can't believe that this idea of wearing a mask has become so politicized. On the other hand, I have compassion and empathy for some of these folks. There's a, a meditation practice called Metta, which mm -hmm. is a loving kindness meditation. And some of the folks who were teaching at um, the place where I did uh, my silent meditation retreat, Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society, you talk about metta. And, and part of what's amazing about metta is you do these loving kindness practice and you give loving kindness to people who you have struggles with. And I have struggles mm -hmm. with um, someone like a Trump. Mm -hmm. um, I have struggles with other global leaders who I think are causing immense pain. And the idea is that if they had more love and they had more compassion mm -hmm. in their hearts, um, that we'd be able to just better understand each other and we'd have better policies. And so it starts with each and every one of us being able to you know, focus on that loving kindness and, um, and show up in a way that exudes that loving kindness um, in, you know, in, with, you know, with our families and our loved ones and our partners and, and at work and, 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 you know, and think about that in the context of, of our leaders. And I think that um, I, I, I believe that we are entering to this era where things like that and talking about that openly won't be this like feeling weird and strange, you know, we're talking about feelings. I think it'll be something that we can talk about um, more openly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more openly and more frankly, right? Yeah, and that it doesn't take away from the importance of very serious policies and very serious political debates. and. And look, I, I, at Lyft, there were people who I worked with who had different political ideologies of mine. And you know what? They made me way better, way better. We had spirited debates. And amongst, you know, different friends I grew up with, we had different ideologies. And again, it, it goes back to that idea, though, of having that sense of mutual respect. And um, my dad would tell a story about his father where he would have a, you know, a debate with someone and say, listen, I don't agree with anything you said but I learned a lot from talking to you and I really appreciate you spending the time to speak with me and having mm. those kinds of conversations that are built out of mutual respect, I think are, I think is really important. Mm. You know what I, and when you say that, I think that's sort of the hope going back to a corporate context, if those conversations could exist or do exist in corporate context, I think that's where 
there's the most possibility for social impact from the corporate perspective is being able to have those frank open conversations and to break down the power dynamics associated with them. Yeah, I agree. I also, I also think that there is going to be an emergence um, from a social impact perspective of companies realizing that sending out a tweet and writing a check, while both very important, it is very important to use your platform to be able to, to take a stand and, and speak out about your values and protect communities. It is very important to write a check and, and be giving money to different nonprofits and organizations who are doing incredible work. I also think there's an opportunity for companies to think creatively about their own unique superpowers mm -hmm. and how each different company could play a role in helping. Um, and I think that company, and not saying that that's easy either. I'm mm -hmm. saying that that takes hard work. You don't get it right the first time. Often it's many, many years in the making. Mm -hmm. But I think to your point, having those initial open and honest conversations is, is sort of a, a catalyst. And, um, and I do believe that there's going to be something positive that comes out of all this. And, and hopefully this next generation of consumers will also you know, vote with their wallets in terms of uh, supporting different companies who, who align with their values. Mm -hmm. Through all these conversations I've had recently, people like yourself that I've interviewed, I'm always trying to sort of connect the dots in their stories and looking back at the questions. And what I've realized is you've talked a lot about this silent meditation and sort of how it's led you, informed you to make this next transition out of Lyft and the next part of your journey. What made you sign up for that silent meditation retreat? Like, what was it? What's, what made you decide that it was time to take some time to reflect and maybe change? I think I, think I, just, I, think I just talked too much. Mm. I'm, kidding. Mm. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm I was kidding. like, okay, cool. <laughs> I mean, I question myself no. on that all the time. <laughs> no, I, I, so, so first of all, I don't, I, I don't want to put too much weight on like this one moment of a silent meditation that, that, yeah. that, that, that it, it was, it, I will say it was, it was, arguably the most powerful thing I've ever done. Um, <laughs> Mike, you know, that's a total though, paradox. <laughs> I know, I know. Too much on let, me, let me explain. But let me explain. Let me explain. Because I, I, I think I, I, be, I, move, I move really fast in life. Mm -hmm. And for me, oftentimes, it's, it's harder to slow down because I love, I, I love so many different people. I love so many different ideas. And I get a lot of energy out of that. And I don't necessarily, you know, need a ton of sleep. And, um, and throughout my life, I think since, honestly, Professor Mann's class, there's been this, this sort of little voice in my head that was like, slow down a bit, mm. delve into the spirit, this, this sense of spirituality. And there was another voice that was like, yeah, but that's not like serious. Like you want to be like a serious, you know, professional. Mm -hmm. And I think over the course of the last few years, and certainly there's many different friends and people who have supported me on, on this journey, but I felt this real calling to, to, to just be, mm -hmm. um, and instead of just do. And, um, and, and so when I finally stepped into this space of, quieting things down when I finally stepped into the space of, of the silent meditation what what I'd come to realize is that in life there there's this value placed on doing all these different things and on um and on listening to all these different voices mm -hmm. and for me when that was all quieted uh I I realized that actually who you are as a person uh how you choose to show up is way more important than all the things that you do mm -hmm. and it's sort of like things that i that i had known it's things that we all talk about and uh but when you actually really deeply reflect on that um i realized that sort of where you work you can derive so much pride out of it uh, and all the things you do you can derive so much satisfaction uh, and it's not to say that I'm going to stop doing things and we'll be doing a lot of different things, but, uh, the B part is something that I will never, I will never forget. Mm. And, and they call, you know, meditation a practice because you have to keep practicing at it. It's really hard. Uh, and, and you keep studying and growing and learning. And, 
Uh, and look, I, I had been thinking about what that transition was going to be for me for quite some time. It didn't, it wasn't just like this, this one instant aha moment. It was just more of like being compassionate to yourself and allowing yourself to leave. I, I, by the way, when I left the Obama administration, um, I gave notice before I had the, the role at Lyft. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, I did not have a job. I, I gave notice because I knew it was time. And a few weeks later, I ended up getting the role at Lyft. And so also reminding yourself that sometimes the universe works in mysterious ways. I have this intention bracelet that says, make it be, let it be. Mm. And it's a reminder that I have the power to make things happen. But also sometimes the universe, just things just happen. And you have to, you have to trust in, in that universe. Trust that there's always that door to your left or to your right that you might not be able to see. And, um, and it takes also not just that, that work for yourself. It's also so many people and teachers and my parents and my brothers and friends and different communities who helped me along the way. It's, it's like when I tell you about that gratitude, um, it's being so grateful for the abundance of people who helped me along the way. And that's part of why I want to help others along the way. Mm -hmm. I do feel this, um, this immense responsibility uh, to, to be able to, you know, to have that, that impact on um, the, the real authentic impact that we talk about. Um, mm -hmm. But when I was in that, that sound meditation, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one last anecdote, which is, uh, you know, often when you meditate, you quiet your mind, different things come to you. And my grandparents came to me during one meditation. And I could hear them say, like, what are you doing? What, you're, what, you're, you're a Buddhist now? You're meditating? What are you doing? Like, you can, my Jewish grandparents. Uh, right? And, uh, and, and, and it was this moment of understanding that they didn't have time to, to meditate. They were their lives were hard they you know my you know my grandfather on my mom's side you know lost a lot of his family in the holocaust and had to effectively start over when he came to israel and and her and her father um you know moved his family from poland to to israel back in the 1930s and uh and you know my mom has her own story of, of coming to the u.s and, and and finding her place and and my dad, you know, his, his parents lived through the depression and, um, and, and life was not easy. And mm -hmm. so the idea of, of me, you know, meditating, I understand that. And then all of a sudden, there's this beautiful moment of compassion of the sort of like, ohm that I'm, I am them and they are me mm -hmm. and that I, I, I can reflect on what they went through and also celebrate the fact that here I am with the time to be able to meditate and mm -hmm. taking the values that they've instilled in my parents and, and that were carried on to me and, and, and utilize this time and space to do things that they may never have had a chance to do and honor them in that way. Mm -hmm. And, and there's something really, really beautiful in that and sort of acknowledging that there are those who came before us and we can't change any of their stories. We can just learn from their stories and, and, and frankly, acknowledge the generational trauma that comes with a lot of, you know, a lot of those stories. Um, and then choose to be who we want to be. Mm -hmm. And know that, you know, in Buddhism, there is this idea that we, they're just, you focus on what is. But you also focus on what can be mm -hmm. and what you think should be. And, and you get to create that, that world that you want. And you get to create, be the change that you want, as, as, as we say. Um, and, uh, and there's something really beautiful about that. And for me, when I was in that meditation, there was just a, a real recognition of that rhythm, um, for myself and what that means in terms of being connected to, to my family, to friends, those around me, to my city I live in and the country I'm in and, and, and the world that we live in. Mm. And I know that sometimes it, it, you know, people say that, oh, what, you know, what is that sort of hippie, hippie stuff you're talking about? I will say, uh, there is a much, much deeper, uh, understanding and reflection to be done around that, 
notion of connectedness around that notion of om that for those who practice meditation or yoga i think understand and i will say i'm starting to understand it uh, much more and i think that there's something very very powerful uh about taking those learnings and putting them into practice in you know government and companies and, and any other fashion mm, what a perfect way to end off today focusing on the world as we want it to be mm. Mike, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your journey and for sharing the news about your transition. I'm excited for the next steps and I'm excited to follow you on on this next phase. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited for the next phase as well. And in, uh, in just starting to meet you and your own journey and, and, uh, and the amazing work that, that you're doing and the platform that frankly you've created and the mm -hmm. canvas that you're painting for, for everybody else. So I appreciate you. And I'm very grateful for, for you and for the time that we've been able to spend together. Thank you, Mike. You can follow Michael Masterman's journey on LinkedIn. Mike and his brother's children's book, Chasing the Sun, is available on Amazon. You can find a link available in the description of this episode. Nuance of Impact episodes come out every Wednesday. You can learn more about our guests on Instagram at Nuance of Impact. We'll see you next Wednesday.